Mr. Seawert, after careful consideration, I've decided not to endorse your park. That's right, everybody. Hold on to your butts. Who's hungry? Clever girl. That's one big pile of shit. Here, you got to stop me or I'm just going to keep fucking quoting from this movie. Like, what are we going to do? I got a list here. Uh, shoot her! <laughs> shoot her! <laughs> what do you got behind there? King Kong? I mean, come on. Let's, let's, let's do this. This week, we're talking about Jurassic Park. The original Jurassic Hey, welcome to I Dig This Movie. I'm Kier Seward, an independent filmmaker and photographer, as well as a guy who would always side with you, Austin, over the blood-sucking lawyer. Ooh, I'm so thankful. I'm Austin Hayden-Smith, philosopher, actor, writer, producer, etc., 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 and I'm super stoked to talk about this movie, Kier. I say we just jump right the fuck in. Since the beginning of time, man has searched the Earth for evidence of its past. But while some have looked for clues to the mystery... One man has found the way to bring the mystery back to life. I own an island off the coast of Costa Rica, and I've spent the last five years setting up a kind of biological preserve. Here, on this private island, science has defied evolution. Where do you get a hundred million year old dinosaur blood? Genetics has mastered creations. We've made living biological attractions so astounding that they'll capture the imagination of the entire planet. And extinction is a thing of the past. Welcome to Jurassic Park. What do they got in there, King Kong? None of these attractions are ready yet, of course, but the park will open with the basic tour you're about to take. Hey, look at this. You see something? Dinosaurs and man. Two species separated by 65 million years of evolution have just been suddenly thrown back into the mix together. Can I touch it? Sure. How can we possibly have the slightest idea? You feel that? What to expect? I mean, what do you say about Jurassic Park? Jurassic Park is the story about what happens when man thinks that he is more powerful than God. When man becomes Prometheus, when man becomes Faust, that is what Jurassic Park is about. I mean, if you don't know the fucking plot of Jurassic Park, uh, just turn this off right now, go to Netflix, and watch it, because it's on Netflix right now. If you can't find it on Netflix, figure it out. Pirate Bay it, uh, go to Amazon, somehow just get it. It's obviously the story about humans who bioengineer through various technologies, whether or not they're accurate, shut the fuck up, it doesn't matter. I don't care if it's possible or not. Michael Crichton made it happen, and it is science because this movie then took it to the next level. People who make dinosaurs from extracting dinosaur DNA from uh, embalmed, or what, what, what are they, amberized mosquitoes. Amber, amberized, uh, fossilized, uh, they, well, I suppose it's fossilized amber with mosquitoes trapped inside. Yes. Um, and then, of course, there is a, a really famous archaeologist and then a botanist who get recruited to come and check out this park where there are a bunch of dinosaurs that have been uh, brought to life. And they are basically there to check off to make sure that this park uh, meets the standards that the lawyers are requiring because there have been some accidents where people had been eaten. 
So they have to come in and check off to basically uh, appease, if you will, the lawyers who are concerned about these lawsuits and safety and shit like that, which is standard. And then, of course, uh, there's another doctor that comes as well, Dr. Ian Malcolm, who has kind of become the cult hero of this film, which uh, hopefully we can talk about. Because John Hammond brought the scientists and the lawyer brought the rock. That's right. (laughs) And he's a chaos theorist, so he's kind of like the pessimist, whereas everyone else kind of seems to be at least at the beginning very optimistic or overwhelmed, enchanted by this magical park. And then the Austin, do you slightly aspire to be Doctor? Bro, Ian he's. I, I can kind of see a bit of him. Bro, in you. I didn't realize it until this watch. <laughs> And then I was like, oh, my God, I want to be him. I totally think <laughs> if you had been attacked by a T-Rex um, and you had your leg bandaged up, you would totally sit there with your shirt open, just kind of like hanging out. That's, 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 that's Austin to a 100%, T. hundred percent, man. I mean, there's still, you know, women around. You got to show off the goods. Um, there's Laura Dern around. So obviously that's what you're absolutely. doing. Absolutely. A fucking men. Um, yeah, it, it's so funny. I didn't even realize it, but. Maybe unconsciously, my academic pursuits uh, have been like influenced by my childhood viewings of uh, Ian Malcolm. But anyway, uh, the power goes out because this other dude, I can't remember who it is, but it's Newman, who uh, has also made a deal at the same time to sell off some of the dino DNA to Dennis Nedry, who do you want to know a weird fact? Mm. I, when I was a child, for years, thought he was John Hammond's son because of the fact that uh, he goes, thanks, Dad. And, of course, as a kid, I didn't get that he's being sarcastic. I literally thought he was actually his dad. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. And he he plays, like, the bad guy at the beginning of this film, and he has made a deal with some other company to... with Dodson, because we got Dodson, Dodson here. Dodson, I got Nobody Dodson. <laughs> um, to sell off the Dino DNA for one point five million dollars, which is a hefty chunk of change. Um, and in order to do that, in order to smuggle it out of the island, he has to turn off the power so that he can get out of the grid. And so he does that. But then what happens is, is he gets eaten, and the power doesn't come back on. And so then all hell breaks loose because now the Dino enclosures are not keeping the electric fences are not keeping the dinosaurs enclosed. So. They get out and they start eating people. And then it's a story of survival and uh, overcoming your phobia of having children and binding together and realizing that maybe man should not mess with nature and things like that. So we're going to talk about what yes, is – because in- if Pirates of the Caribbean breaks down, the pirates don't eat the tortoise. <laughs> that is exactly – are we just going to quote this movie the whole time? We could. <laughs> Dude, it's so crazy how many lines I know from this movie. Like there's there's literal scenes I feel like I can almost do just off the off the dome. I mean, is it fair to say that you like objectively you have you have seen this movie, no exaggeration, more than any other movie ever? Oh, no doubt. Okay. I will there's no other movie that I will ever manage to see as many times as I've seen Jurassic Park. <laughs> like and that's the thing. I've only probably watched it maybe twice in the last like 5 years. Wow. But, like, you know, I watched it so much as a child that it's crazy how much, like, I remember just how the shots work together, Mm. how, like, you know, just just like even like little mannerisms that Mm. people do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the inflection Um, and the way that they deliver a line. Like, the fact that you can remember that from when you were 10 years old is quite – it's quite amazing. Well, actually, the weird thing, too, is how much, like – when I was a kid, there were just points that like, OK, so like the scene where um, uh, the lawyer shows up um, at the in the Dominican Republic to talk to the guy who's doing the digging, mm. who, interesting fact, uh, went to my high school. Oh, no shit. Um, the uh, 
Yeah, um, and um, basically that whole conversation when I was a kid didn't make any sense to me. Mm. I had no idea except they mentioned Grant, so I'm like, so it's something about you know them going to say that they need to get Grant, at, and then I always remember that line because Grant, like me, is a digger. Mm. Um, and but you know, but I didn't really understand like the whole idea of like that they're setting up the fact that uh, John Hammond's got grandkids, that his, that his daughter's going through a divorce, that um, one of the big problems is the legal issues with the workers from the island mm. who've been injured, all of that. Like all, there's so many plot things that I just didn't understand. But I was like, it's fine. They're gonna get to the island with the dinosaurs, so I just need to wait till they get to the island with the dinosaurs. <laughs> and this is all just setting that up. And it's just also kind of funny too because I realized too how like. As a kid, I completely misinterpreted certain things in it. So it's like the bit where he goes like, we've got a T-Rex. And then he sort of like bends down like he's going to be sick. As a kid, I thought that was because he was mad that they bred a T-Rex. Because he's like, oh, no, T-Rexes are evil. Um, but then, of course, now I realize that he's actually just excited. He's just that overwhelmed. They have a T-Rex. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting because, I mean, you know, this is one of those films that I don't think people would expect us to do a deep dive on it because, you know, sometimes we kind of go into the vault and we choose obscure or underwatched films or kind of cult, cult classic kind of films. But this one is one that is like in the forefront of everybody's consciousness. It's been memed. Everybody could quote from it. So why did I choose it? And it's really strange. I watched a Steven Spielberg film. I watched Jaws about a month and a half ago, and it was on Netflix. And I watched it because I was like, man, I haven't seen this film in a very long time. But it's one of those films that, again, is on the forefront of everybody's mind. Everybody just knows that it's a classic. Like everyone just simply knows that it's a classic. So I watched it again and I got reminded from a from a, a pure personal experiential perspective why it was a classic. And so I wanted to do the same thing with Jurassic Park. Like everybody just knows that it's a classic. I have a feeling if we're going to stick with the film that you kind of foreshadowed that we might do of yours as well, it'll be kind of interesting to revisit that one as well. I I, I don't know. They, uh, because it's kind of like everyone just knows that The Terminator is a classic. Everyone just knows that Alien is. But when you revisit them, you know, sometimes you can you can project or sometimes you kind of you wash over the intricacies and the specificity of what made it a classic in the first place. Yeah. Well, I think that's the interesting thing is because um, it's so easy to think of, say, something like Jurassic Park is just simply the phenomenon Mm. Um, because it was this incredibly gigantic cultural moment, this cultural phenomenon. Mm. Um, And and it, it, it carries so much weight to it because of that awareness. And sometimes when you do that, when you watch a film, it just comes down to you're like, yeah, this is. This is mediocre. It's like right. it's like if you think about say say I don't know say think about something like Twilight. Like Twilight mm. is a film that has so much baggage going into it, and then when you watch it, it's kind of just like a dumb mediocre little teen movie. Mm. It's not really. It's not like it's bad, but it's not great either. It's just deeply like meh. And I think right. that's the interesting thing sometimes is how these films stand up beyond simply, you know, the, the wider cultural context of them. Mm. And I think the thing that's really fascinating about Jurassic Park is you watch it. And, you know, I can take on board some of the criticisms that people say about how the characters are fairly, you know, uh, are, are fairly vaguely developed. Mm. But I I actually think that this film is an incredible piece of, cinematic craft Mm. and i actually think it's almost 
a, you know, perfect example of how to structure a screenplay and set things up. Because everything that they set up in the first part of the movie pays off later. Well, I was just going to say earlier, the bit that you're talking about, the scene where the lawyer goes to talk with the guy who's a digger, right? The the fact that they they tightly pack all this information that's going to then unfold throughout, and they raise the stakes. They set the stakes so that it matters in the second act and in the third act. They set it all up right there. I mean, even even the science is established by holding up the fossilized amber with the mosquito. We don't really get it. We're like, like I mean, obviously we get it now, but at first you're like, ooh, that obviously has something to do with the story, but what, you know? And so this this gentle foreshadowing and leading, while not being too uh, over-explanatory, is is really well handled throughout the whole film. I well, think. and it's it's hard for me to imagine what the experience of watching J- Jurassic Park in 1993 as an adult with sort of my critical hat on mm-hmm. would be like. Right. Because the thing is, I'm now watching it as a grown up, having ingested it so many times, having read the book, having been so big a part of like obsessively part of the whole hype machine of Jurassic Park, having you know toys comic books everything is part of the whole phenomenon of this of this film that i know everything that's going to happen i know so it's like so when i'm listening to them talking and they're you know saying certain things i'm kind of like oh okay because that's going to set that up later on when that happens later in the movie Mm. and i don't know if maybe when you're watching it in the first time maybe some of this stuff is flying by too quickly for you to really sort of like grasp onto it or if it's sinking because one of the things i did notice is that the characters, the actors are all doing this really quite naturalistic style of conversation mm. while actually doing an awful lot of exposition. <laughs> so it's like that thing of, I think it works really nicely, mm. but I could imagine how if it's your first go at it, you might actually be missing quite a few kind of key things that they're setting up, which then confuse you later. Yeah. You know what's interesting? I did notice that because, it's so like I just said a minute ago, it doesn't, it doesn't, I should say, it doesn't feel like it's over expositional. It doesn't feel like they're explaining too much because it makes a lot of sense. Like I was watching it this time and something that really, like the first time that I really kind of like paused and reflected was when they are taking the tour and they're watching the video. And I was thinking to myself, oh, that's a really clever way to one, teach the immediate audience, which are the characters on screen, but then also to teach us the audience about the science of this film, right? And it was handled in a way that kind of was like, you know, when you're in elementary school or you're in junior high science class and you watch one of those animated, I don't know, like the magic school bus or one of those like Bill Nye the Science Guy. And they kind of explain it had that kind of feel to it. So it didn't it didn't jar with my cinematic sensibilities. It actually kind of really supported them in a lot of ways because I felt like it was infotainment, not just. Well, it also it felt very like because of the nature of what the environment, the location they're in, um, they're essentially at a theme park. It actually felt very, you know, it felt very legitimate within the story that they would be watching this. It didn't feel like you were just simply being pandered to as an audience member. It felt like a legitimate part of the narrative. Well, and I think it also, I, I think, obviously, we know now upon subsequent viewings how to kind of explain the science. But the reason it's so smart is because after you watch these fucking dinosaurs on screen, and we can talk about that in a minute because I want to talk about the magic of that moment. But after that, I remember sitting there thinking, how? Okay, how? I have to know how. Like, what happened? Just like they want to know how. How did you do this? I think Laura Dern even says that, right? 
Um, or yeah, she's like, how did you do this? And then John Hammond I'll, says, I'll show, I'll show you. you. Right. And so I think there's another element of just the way that the magic was set up. It's so mind blowing and it exceeds anything that we could expect that even us as the audience viewing this, we're so gripped with trying to understand the rationale that that's another reason why the exposition kind of fits because we need to be handheld a little bit, you know, uh, to kind of get, okay, this is, because it isn't just like a monster movie, like, oh, Godzilla comes from outer space and fucking tears apart New York City or something like that. It's not that, it, you know, which is, you don't need the logic really. Like, yeah, oh, we, we don't know how we got here. Great, that's all you need to know. And then it's just survival story, right? But with, with this, it's totally different because cause the science is part of it because it is about should man mess with nature, right? That's part of the story. So the information is crucial to the overall theme. Well, I think there's a key thing, too, in the fact that um, setting it up as this kind of, uh, you know, I think the way that I would say it is like if it's somebody who's kind of saying like, oh, well, that could never actually happen. Yeah, but it's at least a kind of plausibly realistic idea. And that's the thing that I think is the difference. I think it's like if it was something where, I don't know, like scientists built a wormhole in, in time and then a dinosaurs got through the gates, you know, it would... You know, it it feels like very much kind of and like it's just cheesy and trash campy kind and, of dick. Yeah. Can, well, also a kind of like we couldn't come up with a better idea, but we just wanted dinosaurs in the movie, so here it is. <laughs> um, and I and I think there's something really interesting in this idea that um, Michael Crichton, the the original idea came to him from the from the fact that he wanted a kind of plausible way that dinosaurs could co could exist with human beings. And I think because, again, what his real interest in when he wrote the book was this idea of, you know, dinosaurs as living animals as opposed to movie monsters. Mm. Like the idea that humans were interacting with dinosaurs and dinosaurs were just doing their own thing. And, and I think that's something that's brought up again when you're in the, 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 the famous scene where Ian Malcolm says, you know, that you're so, you're so taken with whether you could that the, they didn't think if you should. Um, where they're talking about the the essential thing that they're talking about, and, and Laura Dern gets into this, um, where she sort of says, you know, these are animals that have no idea what century they're in, and they'll defend themselves violently if necessary. And it's that idea that these things are just living creatures and that we can't control them in any kind of a way. But not that they're they're evil or they're cruel or they're mean. They are just doing what naturally makes sense to them or what their instinct is. Yeah, that's different. And I that's think like Godzilla something... is bad. He's the bad guy, whereas they aren't the, well, Godzilla's, aren't the bad guy. Well, Godzilla's guys. not really necessarily a good example because Godzilla is weirdly also kind of a force of nature. That's kind of how it's themed in the movie. Like Godzilla also becomes the good guy a lot of the time. I'd say... You know, I'm, I'm trying to think because King Kong's not a good example either. So I'm trying to think of like a good example. I don't know. Say something like I don't know. Uh, Pacific Rim. Yeah, they're not. They're not the the kaiju's. Yeah, exactly. Let's kind of start from the beginning, uh, or at least relatively the beginning, because I did want to talk. You you even texted me about it, and we talked a little bit back and forth about the magical experience of that first time that those dinosaurs come on screen. Well, and it's it's interesting too because especially given the whole what we know with Jaws and how 
you know, basically they had to minimize the use of the shark as much as possible. So that's one of the things that really works about Jaws is this kind of sense of impending doom and how, you know, you get this presence of the shark without really seeing it. Mm. And I think it's really interesting because I think it was totaled up and the um, total amount of screen time that you see a dinosaur on screen is actually like 11 minutes in a movie that's just over two hours. And, and I looked at it, the running time and the T-Rex attack doesn't happen. I mean, the systems don't fail until an hour into the movie. Um, Mm. So there is a lot that the film is doing with kind of the suggestion without really necessarily showing you. I mean, even like that thing where you first see the raptors, I'd forgotten that you don't see a raptor in that first scene. Like they, you don't see a raptor until pretty much, you know, the last act of the movie. Mm. But it, they, they feel like they have this presence. I mean, unless you count the baby raptor. Right, right. Um, yeah, because they're um, in the opening it, scene. It feels like they have this presence. Yeah, because they're in the opening yeah. scene where they eat the person. And then, of course, they're in the bit where they tear apart that cow. In both cases, you know, in that opening scene, you, in both cases, you don't see anything. You only oh, see... Do you see a hand? The after Or the cause of their destruction. Don't you see a hand in uh, the opening scene? Do you see a hand? No, you don't see a hand. Oh, for some reason, I... yeah. That, okay, maybe I was projecting that. For some reason, I thought that... You saw that in the opening scene, too. No, you're right. But I think that's the point. Yeah. I think they feel like your brain tells you that they have, like, this bigger presence in it than they do. Yeah. But it's because, again, it's like Spielberg's use of – because the thing that's 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 so important in how Spielberg shoots the dinosaurs and how Spielberg creates this sort of – this sort of – um. Uh, feeling of kind of like wonder is because so much of things are played off of the react the human reaction towards anything that's going on mm. so you know so much so every the reason that that opening scene is so intense is because you're really reacting off of what Muldoon is doing you know when he's like shoot and he's got the they got the guy the guy's arm in his you know mm. and he's trying to hold on to him you know and then you see the violence with with the, the guys being tugged and you see like all of these dudes are going in there and trying to like trying to like get this raptor back you're like that whatever is in there is fucking crazy and intense it doesn't you don't need to see it because you know exactly what it can do and you know what the repercussions and how many fucking dudes it takes to control this thing yeah you're you're right it's it's the building of the myth of the raptor that is so important um everybody already knows about tyrannosaurus rex now even if like fuck contemporary findings for people out there that are talking about how they may have been covered with feathers and they probably didn't roar they may have like squawked like a fucking bird or growled like an alligator i don't care well, about any I, I of that i also shit. think that the movie actually has that covered in the sense that of course these are animals that are actually been genetically um created by you know sort of filling in with other dna and stuff like that so these are manufactured creatures you know yeah. so the level to which their accuracy would be is also somewhat dubious yeah and i'm not you know, even, even like i'm not even worried bit about where that. sad where well, there's also that bit where Sadler kind of goes like, you know, you have plants in here that are poisonous. You've picked them because they look pretty. It's like, again, it's it's setting up this idea that really this is as much as for all of Hammond's talk of like, you know, wanting to give this to the world. There is an element to which this is this is a product that they're selling and they, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't it, they want something that looks visually, um, you know, recognizable and pretty. Right, right, right. Um, so like, you know, and all of that stuff aside, it's. It's the raptors that are really the scary, the scariest. Like the T-Rex is, 
yeah. mean, that scene when he gets out, like the T-Rex scene is crazy and intense. But at the end, he kind of becomes an unwitting hero <laughs> and he saves the day. He, he becomes a fucking ninja. Is That's what right. He man. Does. When he catches he that, just, that raptor out of thin air. the background oh. <laughs> and then just like... And just grabs the thing and just, just just takes those two raptors out and then uh, and then the bit when he just throws it and throws the raptor and it, he breaks all the te- the the sort of the skeleton and then does the roar. It's just like oh god, it's so it is so great. But no, literally, great. I I said to you, I it's it's so funny because Alex can tell you that the experience of because I was sitting on a train coming down from uh, the Glasgow Short Film Festival um, back to London and. I was watching it on a laptop, and um, the bit where they're in the helicopter, and it's, like, bumping, mm. and um, and Grant uh, does the thing where he can't get, like, the buckles to work, and then he ties them up, mm-hmm. and, it's, like, got the, and it's got, like, the score, and it's, like, and I was just, like, I was just getting chills, and I was smiling so much, and Alex was just looking at me, like, <laughs> laughing about, like, how into this I was. And then the bit where where Hammond goes, welcome to Jurassic Park. I was just, like, I, I had tears in my eyes. It was just, like, yeah. it was, like, an emotional moment for me. Well, yeah, that, that's what I was going to say is is because we don't know much about the raptor. And so we're, we're there's, like, a lot of myth that's being that's doing a lot of work here. And you have the bit where Grant, you know, has the kid on the dig and he's got the claw and he kind of, he sets up how threatening, how imposing, how kind of wild and crazy and intelligent these animals are. And so it's, it's setting up like a conceptual scale, like the scale. It's also like setting up such perfect. It's so, it's such great sort of like structural writing too. Cause it's setting up two things at once. Uh, Grant's disdain for children and also perfectly setting up the main antagonist of the third act. That's right. And not only that, but also how, uh, how smart they are and how it is that these antagonists hunt, because that's exactly how they kill the clever girl guy. What's his name? Yeah, unfortunately, Muldoon didn't know that. I know. He saw. He he thought he had that raptor to rights, and then uh, nope. clever girl from the side. Clever girl. Uh, if only Grant had been yeah. able to tell him how it is that they hunt. Two like raptors. That. I know. Come but on. you didn't even know we're there. But but you're absolutely right about once you get to that scene where they're there, and there's there's this crescendo that that ultimately comes, and I love how it doesn't start with being introduced to the T Rex. It starts with the Brontosaurus, right, or the Brachiosaurus, whichever one it is, um, and then of course then it pans out or it gets, goes to the wide shot where you see the other dinosaurs in the water and everything like that. But it, that bit where she is looking down, where Laura Dern is looking down at this leaf, and she is she's overwhelmed at how old this species of plant is. And then, and then to the next, which is mind blowing, like something that's been extinct for hundreds of thousands of years or millions of years. And she's freaking out about that. And then, and then when she looks up and she pulls those glasses down off of her face, the performances in that scene do so much work as well. But the, the level, like it just goes through the ceiling, like whatever, whatever the ceiling of emotion is, it kind of pops through that. And you're like, holy fuck. We are in the presence of something magical. I think it's so fascinating too, right? Because I think that that is the kind of scene that a lesser filmmaker would completely toss away and not realize that this is their marquee set piece. Mm. Is that you have to sell in this moment in time just how incredible this is. And because, of course, that's the thing is 
I think mm. because of special effects, to a certain extent, we've been somewhat numb to the idea of like the, 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 some of the simpler, ple- simpler pleasures of spectacle. Mm. Um, but the idea that really you experience the wonder or, the, um, or just the incredible shock through these characters' performance before you see anything, I think is so key to selling that moment when you first see the dinosaur. Because even, like, I watched it now on a little digital copy, and I watch it, and I'm kind of like, you know, for 1993, this is still pretty damn impressive looking, but, you know, I can definitely, you can see the seams of it now. Mm. Um, But it doesn't matter, because the emotional experience of what they're looking at is what's really selling you on the idea. And and I think and I think that's I mean it's interesting because Spielberg kind of said that one of the things that he that he was really interested in was just using this as an opportunity to work with actors that he really wanted to work with, mm. and I think Sam Neill was not a big name then, and I don't think has ever been a big name. And you know obviously he's a well respected actor, but he's never been like you know your your name above the title kind of guy no. you know there's a reason that he went out and got sam neil because he's like this guy is a proper actor he can really do what i he can sell these moments for me mm. you know and i think it's really interesting to see just how you know i i think it's genuinely a, a really great performance because again when you see the humans interacting with the dinosaurs, you don't sit there and it's you don't have what I think of as the George Lucas problem in, say, like the prequels where it's people blankly staring at a tennis ball <laughs> and not really knowing what they're looking at. Mm. You know, this it feels like they are really seeing these dinosaurs. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think the reason that you can go out and get real actors in this film is because you've got Steven Spielberg and you've got dinosaurs on the marquee. Like, that's enough, right? And so at that point, go out and get the best performers that you can rather than worrying about trying to get a movie star in that role. And if the film is good enough, then you'll kind of make a movie star. Even though you're right, like even even Laura Dern, I mean, Jeff Goldblum is the name I think that people – like I don't even think a lot of people would know Sam Neill's name, right, that, that have seen this film. But everybody knows Jeff Goldblum. Because he has become like well, especially because also Jeff Goldblum meme. in the last like five years has kind of become a meme, <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's it's yeah, yeah. And he like takes like his career's kind of resurgent through that. And he like you know he plays like in a jazz band or something like that uh, in in uh, Silver Lake or actually it's in Los Feliz, and people love to take photos with him. And he's become like social media famous. It's like he he started playing the character of Jeff Goldblum. Yes, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I kind of feel the same sometimes about Nick Cage. Yeah, no, 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 totally. But I think um, I think the funny thing with um, with it too is is Ian Malcolm is definitely a Jeff Goldblum creation because mm. if you read the original Ian Malcolm in the book, they're not really very similar. Well, it's like Jeff Goldblum is the one who kind of came in with this idea of like Ian Malcolm's like more of like a rock star scientist. Uh, tell me about the difference in some of the other characters. I also heard that John Hammond was very different, that he's a bit more arrogant. Oh, yeah. Right? John Hammond's more like your kind of megalomaniacal billionaire right. um, who just kind of like – it's like he even doesn't really seem to give that much of a shit about his grandkids. It's like I just want the park to work and then there's the point later where you know he gets eaten by raptors and the book's kind of like, yeah, fuck you. Uh. Creator gets eaten by his creations. Take that, you evil billionaire. So it's that kind of thing. Um, Grant is actually, like, really pro-kids in the book because he thinks they, like, 
because he's he's like he sees a kinship in their in their love of dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Um, him and like the books like really creepily sort of like got this thing with Sadler where she's like she's so fucking sexy. She's like a hot tan blonde <laughs> beautiful kind of thing. Um, but like but her and Grant aren't like together or anything in the book. Um, so there's there's quite a bit of difference in terms of like the characterization the okay. book is really rambling like actually i'd say like one of the things that this movie and part of the problem is i i, I watched the movie i loved the movie i read the book more as like a, an appendage to the movie mm. and the movie strips away a lot of stuff that's not that interesting in the book and streamlines it an awful lot um but the funny thing is that a lot of the stuff that they took out of the book then gets put back in in the sequels so like the whole thing where like the in at the beginning of the lost world jurassic park where like the little girl the family's like vacationing on a beach and then the little girl goes and like she gets attacked by like the little procom signathus dinosaurs that's actually from the opening of the original jurassic park book um you know, mm-hmm. like the pterodactyl, there's a pterodactyl attack in Jurassic Park 3, which is something that, again, happens in the first Jurassic Park book. Like, there's a riverboat, the whole riverboat section in 3, which is kind of inspired by a riverboat section in dress, in the first book. So, yeah, and I've also, I've, I have read The Lost World, um, which isn't bad, but it's not that good either. I, I feel that's kind of how you describe most of Michael Crichton's writing, is that he's... He's really good on big ideas and plot. He's not great on characters. Um, mm. He tends to have really kind of like the good, strong Indiana Jones scientist type and the evil billionaire. That's 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 a thing that <laughs> appears quite a lot in his writing. Um, but like weirdly, because of Jurassic Park, as a child, I was weirdly obsessed with Michael Crichton. Like, I read a lot of Michael Crichton books because it was just, just funny to think I was, like, this preteen that was obsessed with, like, this airport, you know, novel writer. <laughs> that's exactly um, but, yeah. how I think of him. That's like, I, that's what I think of him as. When I'm at the airport and I'm at the bookstore and I don't have anything for the plane and you look and there's a Michael Crichton novel and you're like, okay, I'll buy that. That'll be good for the plane. I will say he wrote a book called Timeline, which they made a terrible fucking movie out of with um, Paul Walker and... Um, uh, uh, Jared Butler, but I think it would make a really awesome Netflix series if Netflix ever wanted to do that because it has a really kind of interesting spin on time travel. But like the really cool thing about it was because obviously Michael Crichton, the other thing he did was he'd always do like a lot of research before he wrote a book. And I'm sure like he had like teams of people who did research for him. I don't think he was actually like going out and doing the research himself. But he then um, he then uh, went and. Uh, yeah, he went, um, he, he, he'd done so much research into like the, the, the sort of period of the hundred years war that the book was set in. It's like so filled with detail. It's like reading like some weird kind of like history text about it. I mean, the unfortunate thing about Michael Crichton is that he kind of became a climate denier towards the end of his career. He wrote this weird novel called state of fear, which is all about how like the, um, the, evil liberals are trying to fool us into thinking climate. Yeah. I had a friend, I had a friend, let me borrow that, like a decade ago and i have it in storage still i never gave it back to him and also i don't know if he listens uh, i don't know if he listens to this podcast because i know he listens to other stuff that i do so kyle uh i remember when you let me borrow that uh i will give it to you one day <laughs> well i read it and actually briefly for a point in my life flirted with climate denialism um for around a year and then kind of realized the error of my ways but it's it's um yeah i was i was i was was 18 i was a dumbass but um it was 
So I, I, I think it's, it is kind of, um, but I think, I think he's, he's a kind of, you know, he's, he's an enjoyable enough writer. Um, if writing is not the thing you most prize in when you're reading a book, there was a certain, um, uh, area of the critical community that was very dubious about the huge sort of marketing, um, element of this film. And if you remember, there's a bit, there's a scene, um, where, John Hammond's talking about the the flea circus, and before that scene starts, they sort of pan over all of this merchandise. And to me, you know, I think there's something narratively interesting in that because I think there's something to be said about how, again, this whole thing is this this collapsed vision of this kind of giant uh, this 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 giant theme park and experience. And so th- this idea that this this now this completely defunct merchandise is is some is an is an interesting texture to the film. But a lot of people saw that as a very hollow way of saying, hey, come buy Jurassic Park shit. Um, and I think both can actually be true at the same time. Um, but, I, you know, I, so I think there was, a, there was a skepticism within certain parts of the critical community about like this. And they'd sort of say, oh, this is just, you know, this is just spectacle. It's empty spectacle. And it's like the characters are really thin. But I actually don't agree. I think the characters are very well defined. I think you can describe exactly who each character is. I think, I think if you came out of this movie and you said, okay, describe who Alan Grant is, describe who Ellie Sadler is, describe who Ian Malcolm is, they all have specific character traits. They all have their own kind of little arcs and sort of, um, and, and, and they all have their kind of, um, their, their own sort of char- character elements to them. And I think they're also very well defined visually. So I, I think in many ways what they're asking for is something that's not really fair to expect from a movie like this. I mean, this is not a character study. I think these are well-drawn characters within a spectacle adventure story. Well, I'm actually surprised, though, that people think that the characters are underdeveloped. I mean, I mean, you do get – and maybe it's because I, I do hear the criticism about Spielberg that he's, like, overly sentimental, Right. So maybe it has something to do with that, that there's not a lot of complexity to the characters because they're not they're defined. They just are clearly defined and they kind of have their own characters. There's not a lot of like ambiguity, right? Like like we love our complex. We love our bad guys uh, empathetic and we love our good people with an edge like, you know, Dr. Grant is an honorable earnest scientist who also has morals. He just doesn't want to have a family and he doesn't really love kids so much. And, um, you know, Malcolm is kind of this arrogant chaos theorist who uh, is kind of like the rock star scientist and he's kind of right. And, but he's still kind of cocky up until the end. And, you know, Hammond is this, he gets kind of humbled. He does a little bit. Yeah. Um, but so you kind of, the people are kind of just straightforward and maybe that's why people don't like it because there's a simplicity about the characters. And so it's almost like, it, I mean, the, the, I the lawyer is definitely set up very much so to get like a kind of like, he, he's a kind of obnoxious character and deliberately made so, so that you kind of don't aren't too upset when he gets eaten. By the <laughs> no, you kind of root for him to get um, eaten. I mean, I wonder what it is because, because why, why do you think it is though that Spielberg, he gets a lot of shit. Is it because, I mean, in a way this isn't, I don't want to say this isn't an adult film, but in a way there's a childlike element of this film. And maybe it's just people who they don't like naivete. They don't like that kind of childlike wonder as much. And they want like a David Lynch film. Like if you are a fan of moody existential kind of dramas, then yeah. And you, and you don't have any sort of room for anything else in your viewing capacities, then you might not love this film because it might just seem cheesy and childlike. But 
but that's kind of what this film is. And I feel like if you're going to judge it within its own genre, or if you're going to judge it for what it is, you have to realize that it, it, for a film that is doing fantasy, um, I don't really think it's hollow. Like there's simplicity to it, but it's not hollow. And I think the sort of, there's some really interesting themes going on within this film too, of the idea of um, humanity trying to control nature and to what extent are we capable of even controlling nature, you know? And I think there's some interesting ways that you could expand that out onto things like, you know, uh, even like things like say, like climate change uh, or, um, nature preservation, this sort of, there's a sort of hubris in humanity and this idea that we think that we can fix things, that we can um, ultimately bring nature within our grasp. And, you know, I come from a sort of idea that I think that nature to a certain extent is chaos and that we can't, you know, are, are, there's, there's a certain amount of hubris in humanity to think that we're able to, you know, sort of control the sort of the, the system of nature. This is a this is a kind of updated Frankenstein Frankenstein story, right? Like this this is a very common theme. Well, that's an in... interesting question, though. Do you think this movie comes off as anti science in any kind of a way? Um, anti science. I mean, it's a cautionary tale. I think. I think Crichton is definitely. If you said that he wrote a sort of book on climate denial, it seems that he's always that maybe there's a skepticism towards humanity's ability to know, right? And so he seems to have this skepticism. Which is interesting because yeah. he comes from – but he's definitely clearly very enamored with science because – I mean also he was, a, he was a doctor. That was where he started off, um, you know, and so he was – so clearly there is some kind of healthy respect and interest in science. So, I mean, I can't imagine – I but I think I think there is a – there, there's there's this constant theme throughout all of his work about the idea of the hubris of man and that man thinks that, you know, through science it can control things. And so I think there's that there's that element to which maybe the idea is that science is more a method of understanding. Because usually I'd say the heroes are scientists who are like, we want to understand the thing. And then the billionaire evil guy is the one who wants to control it. Mm. So that's possibly it. And I think that kind of goes back into the whole theme of the idea that these are animals rather than monsters. That they are – then the idea that we can control these animals is where the hubris comes in, not necessarily just in the creation of the animals. Yeah, you know what I would say is there's a sort of ecology in this film. Right. Mm. That that it's kind of a things exist in an order. And this is where I think that I mean, we don't need to get into the accuracy of this. It's just more interesting to put it out there and expose it. But this idea that things exist in their place, like when Laura Dern's character says that, you know, these dinosaurs, they're not from this century. They're going to behave. It's kind of like that they belonged in their time and in their place, but they don't belong in this time. They don't belong in 1993. They don't belong Well, that's what, that's what Malcolm says, because Malcolm says, you know... Nature got rid know, of them. Dinosaurs had their time, right. and nature selected them for extinction. Right, exactly. And it's almost as though there's this purpose that is guiding things, and man is confronting that telos, that teleology. And so there's this way that things run. There's there's a there's a linear story that history unfolds or that nature kind of follows. And that's exactly what happens in this story is is that Jurassic Park is a tale of what happens when you fight against that. And so there's kind of a a religious theology in this film as well that's kind of a you need to succumb and 
kind of find your place within the balance of the unfolding of nature's plan. And humanity's part is, you know, unique in particular. And the dinosaurs had their part and the, the, the flora had, had its part. And we need to figure out how to find our space in it, not buck against that. You know, and I think in that well, sense, when I think that's yeah, what, go ahead. When I think that's why I, I really love the idea too of when they're talking about the raptors and that whole scene where they see the the raptor enclosure. The as 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 mentioned, we don't see the raptors. And actually, this is funny because um, there was a there was a comic book series that was put out of Jurassic Park that was just basically the movie but done in comic book form. But it would flesh out things that say like at, at certain points. But I remember that bit in the raptor enclosure in the comic book. And then they cut to a shot where you see into the raptor enclosure and you see the raptors eating the cow. And it felt like, even as a kid, I remember feeling like, oh, well, that doesn't look that interesting when I see it. It's like it feels so much scarier when you can't see it, when you're just seeing the trees move and you're hearing the noises and it just and you're looking at the reaction on the people's faces. That, to me, looks so much more fascinating than just watching, like, some CGI creatures attack a cow. Mm, right. Um, and, and the thing that I love, though, is I love the way that he talks, that Muldoon, who's an actor that I can't remember seeing in anything else ever. Um, but he, the, that, whole, that whole speech where he goes, like, talks about how, you know, the raptors were attacking the fences, testing it for weaknesses, mm. and then he just goes... They remember. <laughs> you know, it's like, but yeah, but that's that that's that point where again it's just building this mythology of the raptors in this really fascinating way because it's building on this idea of their intelligence. And so again, later on when they're stalking them through um, the compound, you're like, oh fuck, they're learning shit as they go. And so it makes mm -hmm. everything they do seem more malevolent. But at the same time, they're still just wild animals. Well, I, was gonna, I know. Why do you think it is, though, that people shit on Spielberg and his sentimentality? I think, I think the thing with him is the fact that I, I think a lot of the time the sentimentality comes dosed in a certain amount of real, gritty human drama. And so to me, a lot of the time he earns that sentimental streak. Like, I don't think his films are treacly. Mm. Um, I think there's a healthy dose of darkness within most Spielberg films. And I think that's, again, it's like when you look at sort of what people have come to idealize as the sort of Amblin model. Um, I think that's what was always interesting about those Amblin films is they kind of put kids in danger. They were films yeah. that were really about kind of the messiness of childhood and then often about the sort of the romantic that then came coded in this kind of finale often about the romanticism of how that that childhood experience, you know, would ultimately blossom into this more sort of emotional feel um mm. and and i and i think i think he gets a bad rap i think also spielberg became a better filmmaker i think there's a run in the 80s where he has some a couple of kind of bad movies what um, are you thinking i mean like i think all one thing always was pretty bad um and i think um and and again like i don't know to me when i look at say i I'm not the world's biggest fan of E.T., if I'm being honest. Um, Heresy. But even when I think about E.T., I think it is a film that does have a lot of harsh reality mixed in with the sentimentality. Mm. And I don't know. I just, um, like, my mother's one of these people. My mother doesn't like Spielberg. Mm. Um, and I think part of it, too, is that he does things like, I mean, I'm really rambling here, but I think, if I think about, say, something like Saving Private Ryan, I think Saving Private Ryan is a fucking masterpiece of a film 
But I think it is hurt by those bookends. I think those bookends really annoy people. What are the and What are I the think bookends? That's oftentimes, you know, where he goes to the grave and he uh. sort of like falls on his knees when he sees the grave, and then it's sort of like, uh, and then the the, the 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 shot morphs into the shot of like um of um of Tom Hanks, and then you get that amazing like beach sequence. Yeah. Um, and then you have like the whole film, which I think I I think you know. Saving Private Ryan completely revolutionized the war film. I I think that basically every war film made post Saving Private Ryan basically sits in its shadow. Mm. Um, you know, I, I I think it is one of the greatest achievements of Spielberg's career. It's it's an incredible piece of cinema. Mm. Um, but then after all of that, you end and and actually I think a film that hasn't been treacly sentimental for most of it. It's dealt with emotions, but I think in some very harsh and stark and interesting ways. Um, and a film that actually has an incredibly downer ending because pretty much everyone dies um, except for um, except for Matt Damon. And then the whole point of that final thing should really be is 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 it's supposed to be the idea that Matt Damon, the Matt Damon character Ryan, is struggling with this idea of was sending these eight men who pretty much all died to save him actually worth it in the end has he lived a life Mm. that is worthy of of that sacrifice but it feels sentimental and it feels trite and then you have the waving american flag and it feels kind of weirdly jingoistic and Mm -hmm. it just it kind of lets out all the air of that kind of like of everything that was kind of harsh and stark about the film leading up to that point and makes you think it was a more sentimental film than it was and i think that's the real difficulty with spielberg is that oftentimes you know, the sentimentality sticks out to people and it's, that's what they grasp onto rather than a lot of what had come before it. Mm. Yeah. I also wonder if, if he's sort of, uh, if the backlash is kind of a historical backlash. And what I mean by that is, is that, that people have a hard time in the nineties in particular with sentimentality when people were real. I mean, I think now people are starting to enjoy it more. Like you look at the comedies and you look at the TV shows and you look at the films that are being made and there is a sincerity that's come back. You know, sometimes it's referred to in, in literature as the new sincerity. And there, a lot of times there's this, uh, there's this theory that we've moved away from the postmodern ironic detachment that characterized so much of the art and, media in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s and now we're we're moved into a sort of what do they call the meta modern and so even a film or even a tv series like atlanta is still funny and it has irony but it has a lot of sincerity and um we might say sentimentality although i know sentimentality oftentimes has negative connotation to it but it doesn't necessarily need to be just in the literal sense that there is there is a sentiment that is authentically and sincerely being explored and delivered and I think that we might just have to say then that Steven Spielberg as a human is probably a very sentimental person. And and I think now that like when we revisit a lot of these films that that we're not so mired in uh, that phase of, of like postmodern irony that now we kind of really can enjoy the sentimental elements of an E.T. or a Jurassic Park or um, – or of other films that we might have criticized previously. What I don't know. Why maybe. is it, Austin, that we're like over an hour into recording and I still don't feel like we've really touched 
on the genius of Jurassic Park. I mean, because it's one of those films that we can fanboy about forever. And there's a lot to say. I mean, from the technical prowess to the acting performances to the magic of a film that brings dinosaurs to life to a film that created characters that have become just a part of our cultural landscape that will like redefine certain crucial elements of pop culture moving forward now to um i don't know just the the ability of somebody to make a film that can appeal to a child and then 30 years later still appeal to them i mean it's not quite 30 years but um 25 years later still have that magic to it and i think that there's something there's something really profoundly fantastic in that do you remember the experience of seeing Jurassic Park the first time? I don't remember the experience of seeing it the first time, but I do remember being overwhelmed by watching it as a kid. I don't remember the first time. I don't remember if I saw it in the theater. Like I don't I don't remember that. But I a hundred percent remember feeling just in awe at this movie. And the amazing thing is is that I still get that that feeling of awe with this film. And I watched it on a laptop. You know, it's not like I watched it on a big screen or uh, definitely not on like a projector or anything like that. Um, I just watched it on a little 15-inch MacBook, and it still had that power. I think that's amazing. Well, I was was thinking, right? I was thinking, I think like this film has a couple of like interesting like Rosetta Stones for me in the sense that I think it was the first time I was ever really experienced to the idea of like good scary, as in you could be thrilled by something scaring you. Mm. And I remember, like, I wasn't, I was really, you know, I remember I was really, really scared of the Velociraptors. Um, mm. And, but it was like, I couldn't not watch it. It's like, and I remember too, because I saw it twice. I remember my dad took me and then I remember, because my mom famously for years had never seen Jurassic Park and was kind of smugly self-satisfied <laughs> in the fact that she had never seen Jurassic Park because she hates Spielberg. Um, even though I can point out numerous Spielberg films that she's watched and liked, she still maintains that she does not like Spielberg. Um, uh, mom, if you're listening, you know, one day I'm going to make you watch Schindler's List. It's going to happen. <laughs> I know I still have Because we made this deal that if I would read a, Rus- uh, uh, a Russian novel, because uh, uh, she's always been for years trying to get me to read the Russians, but if I would read a Russian novel, she would watch Schindler's List. Did you read a Russian um, novel? Which she still... No, I still haven't read you know, it. Does it, count, <laughs> does it count if you do uh, a short story? You could do like a Dostoevsky short story. Uh, she, she would be fine with a novella. I am, if, if I did a novella, that would be okay. Um, but she's not asking me to read War and Peace. Um, but, um, <laughs> but like she's really against the fa- Schindler's List because for the pure reason that it's called that, – that they changed the name from Schindler's Ark because the book was called Schindler's Ark to Schindler's List. So um, – but, um, but yeah. Well, but, well uh, go read I mean, go so, read The Dream of a Ridiculous Man by Dostoevsky and then you can get her to watch Schindler's List. I you know my mom, my my dad took me to it um and then you know this was actually during the ten, the 10 months that we lived in California. So I actually saw it in a cinema um probably somewhere near Albany, probably in Berkeley or somewhere like that. And then um quite soon afterwards I was in Scotland and I saw it and my grandfather took me to it again. And just, like, the anticipation of kind of the thrill 
of being able to like of of anticipating that kind of fear again of 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 the raptors and then of course as i the more i watched it the more i wasn't scared of the raptors anymore um and i mean and i think there's something really fascinating for me in terms of how it my development as a as a sort of cinema goer because you know i didn't really watch horror films when i was a kid like i was not wasn't one of these kids who saw alien when i was like six or something like Mm. that most of these things i didn't see until i was quite a bit older and i think you know i think jurassic park was really key in kind of like weaning me into that idea of like the thrill my first experience was terminator 2 with that yeah, but a similar thing. And and I I feel like in my mind I still hold Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park in similar regard because I think I saw them around the same time. Um and I was cuz I was around that age, you know, I was you know in like the the 9 to 11 or 9 Yeah, well nine. they only came out about 2 years apart cuz Terminator 2 came out in 91. Okay. Well, and I I saw it on VHS. I didn't see it in the theater. So cuz I saw it at my aunt's house. So I may have even seen them in 93. both of them you know but it was definitely around that age and same sort of thing fear and wonder and excitement and intrigue all at the same time whereas prior to that you know my film watching experience i think was mostly just like happy stuff like happy feelings and happy stories and disney stuff and yeah bambi dies and it's sad but it's still all kind of it's got this like levity to it this this there's no real harm there's no real threat whereas uh jurassic park definitely introduces the threat um I, yeah, I, and I think the other Rosetta Stone definitely is that I think um, I think Laura Dern might be my ideal woman. You know, I think it was. I I, I don't think as as a child I quite had the understanding to 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 see it now, mm. but I'm just like I mean like she kind of dressed like a tomboy. She's sassy as fuck. Mm. Um, she's really smart, and um, she doesn't take shit off anybody. And I'm just like I'm just like yeah, Laura Dern, man. It's just. <laughs> Even more than 1990s Sandra Bullock? I th- Well, I think Laura Dern was my first love. Sandra, 1990s Sandra Bullock wasn't until a little bit later. But like, I, think, I think Laura Dern is in that way where as a child you're like, I'm fascinated by that person. I don't know why, but I'm fascinated. But, but there's, there's some kind of chemical reaction that's happening in me that I'm not old enough to understand yet. Yes, yes, yes. It explains a lot. but no i mean i think that's the funny thing with it is how i mean you know literally i could probably do an hour on like every scene in this film because i mean just you know if you wanted to talk about just like the brilliant orchestration of like the t-rex uh when the t-rex breaks out of the enclosure Mm. and you know you could go shop by shot at how well that scene's orchestrated, how they use the practical versus the CGI, mm. you know. And I mean, I mean, the funny thing about Jurassic Park is there are like these things that you can point out that don't really make a lot of sense. Like why in that T-Rex attack, like when they get like pushed back on the enclosure, suddenly there's like this giant drop. Where the fuck did that come from? Is the T-Rex like climbing up the side of the thing to get over it? Like how, you know, how did the geography of that work? But it's like you don't care. Because it's all part of, like, mm. the adventure. And sure, the logic of that a mosquito would get trapped in amber literally moments after having, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, suck the dinosaur's blood and that it's not digested enough that you would be able to get some DNA out of that is would be such an incredible kind of, like, lucky break that it's pretty much almost impossible that it would ever have happened. Well, and, and not um, only did, did it happen one time. for but... you to get lots of different DNAs. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah. But who the fuck They cares? have hundreds of different species. <laughs> 
I, yeah. But also, like, they get they manage to get all the fun ones that people recognize as well. They don't end up with some dumb, like, grass-eating tiny thing from, like, the Cretaceous period. No, they've got, like, the Triceratops and the T-Rex as if there were really only, like, 20... The 20 species everyone knows are the ones that they managed to actually uh, get from the mosquitoes. I know. Could you imagine if they just got, like, prehistoric cows... And that's what the film was. Exactly. Like, we should, you know, we should, or like they just ended up with like, or they just ended up with like uh, the early ancestors of like crocodiles or something like that. Yeah. And you're like, we already have those. Yeah, like I feel like that would be a good short film to make for like one of those 48 hour uh, film festival competitions uh, where it's basically like Jurassic Park, but the boring version, you know, where you basically just are reproducing, I don't know, single cell amoebas or something. Because that's yeah, exactly because <laughs> that's the only DNA you, you can find. The, the scientist is kind of going like, "You don't understand. This is really incredible what we've managed to do." And the people are like, "Yeah, but it's boring." Yeah. I don't care. And they even have a theme park um, for it. They're like, "We've cloned five, uh, four billion year old like plants or like hamsters." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, oh, but um, no, I I, I will say because one thing I want to finish this off. Um, boy, this episode's going to run long. What, what the fuck can you yeah. do? Um, but I. I I will say, like, the thing that I found so fascinating in this and I sort of really thought about was I'm like, I don't think that this movie – because I think this movie has such an indelible effect on the culture. And I think it, it actually ended up doing – changing so much about how we viewed CGI, how we viewed spectacle, mm. what we could do with special effects, that I ultimately don't think this film could be made anymore. Like, I don't think, like mm. – I don't think you could make a film where the spectacle is purely a small 11 minute, you know, section of, of, of grouping of shots where you get to see like a dinosaur. And that's inherently the problem that comes with these Jurassic Park sequels is that even by the lost world, there's kind of a sense of, okay, we're over this. You're not going to get like, you're not going to get, be able to get enough material out of people looking up at a dinosaur and going like, Oh my God, it's a dinosaur. Because at that point people are done with it. And it's like when I watched Jurassic world fallen kingdom, which was uh, possibly right up there with Bohemian Rhapsody as my most hated film of last year. Um, they try that. They try to get like a shot where like people look up at the dinosaur and they're going, like, "Oh my god, it's a dinosaur!" And you're kind of like, "Okay, it's a it's a giant piece of CGI." I, I I don't care. It's they've, and I think fundamentally, Jurassic Park should just they should never have made any sequels to it because it is not a film mm-hmm. that is in any way an obviously sequelized thing. I think it's deceptive that you would think that like you're like, "Oh yeah, there's plenty of other things you could do with dinosaurs," but I think inherently, what people gravitate towards about it what people love about it is actually so pure in its simple childish, um, you know, excitement that I, I don't think you can replicate it. And at, at a certain point, it's like what we talk about with sequels in general, like in order to make something out of it, a sequel out of it, that's worthwhile. You have to change so much that at a certain point, why is it even that thing? I mean, I think like, why do you even call it Jurassic Park anymore? You, you might think this is blasphemy, but I think a film like super eight kind of does this successfully. Now, it's not as successful, obviously, but again, there's something kind of similar to that where it's a story, no, and you I, know, like Abrams. In theory, because it's trying to ape this. Definitely. Because essentially, and that's that's the difficulty with Super 8 is that it doesn't feel like its own thing. It feels purely like it's trying to ape something else. And here's the big issue with Super 8 is it doesn't fucking stick the landing with the monster. Mm. Like the alien creature looks like crap. <laughs> and that's the thing is like. That's the thing. Jurassic Park kind of wouldn't work if they didn't stick the landing mm. 
with these and and it's interesting because originally they wanted to do stop motion um and spielberg was looking at the stop motion tests and he was like these suck this isn't gonna work um and then um just on a whim they said hey do you want to see this cgi uh, industrial light and magic i think it was so i said do you want to see this cgi like ske- like like the little thing that we're going to put together like a little test of a dinosaur spielberg was very skeptical they went away they made like a little test and he saw it and he was blown away and he was like, okay, this is the future. And famously, he went and saw it with a stop motion guy whose name I can't remember, but he turned to the stop motion guy and said, I think you're extinct. And that is where that line comes from in the movie um, because that because basically that entire stop motion department then ended up just retraining as computer, um, as a CGI sort of um, wow. technicians because um, essentially at that moment in time, it was like, okay, stop motion is dead. Hmm. Interesting. And so he kind of created happened like that, and it happened pretty much overnight. So he kind of like, created you know, a new technology. You look at, yeah, interesting. And of course, I mean, obviously, the thing that's so amazing about Jurassic Park as well is that it's really heavily augmented with these great practical um, sort of animatronics. So you have um, these great, you know, sort of uh, Stan Winston creations. Yeah, like the bit when Dr. Grant's laying on the Triceratops. But it means that what they have to do is they have to think out their shots carefully and figure out how to sell it through uh, through implying things without just relying on the CGI. They know they're going to get a big money shot from the CGI, but otherwise they have to work out how to shoot around it with the animatronics. And that is very fucking key because, as I would say, the biggest difference if you watch, say, Independence Day in 1996 and then you watch, like, Independence Day Resurgence is that um, I think you see how they're forced to tell a strong cinematic story in Independence Day based off their limitations of their CGI. And mm. then you see once they can do anything with CGI, it's just a lazily shot on a green screen and nobody is caring mm. about the cinematic language of how you imply the idea of scale and, you know, and, and, and how you imply the idea of, of terror and fear through having to use the actors and use the camera angles to really showcase that because you're aware that we are going to get one one money shot in this, but we can't just have like the actor in the shot with the thing doing the thing. It can't do anything. We've just got to we've got to work around our limitations. And so maybe it's a mm. maybe Jurassic Park is actually a really good case study of why limitations is important for filmmakers and how CGI did or at least badly thought out CGI. Cause I think if you actually watch, say someone like Guillermo del Toro use it in Pacific Rim, he's actually really great at using cinematic language with CGI, but it's, it's a case study, I think in how, you know, you could pretend how, you know, what happened before CGI kind of ran amok. When I think, and I think that's the, the, the true part of it too, is that when you end up looking at the dinosaurs and say something like Jurassic Park Fallen Kingdom or, which actually is, I would say at least better shot than, Colin Trevorrow's piece of shit, um, <laughs> Jurassic World. You, don't, you just don't like him. <laughs> and I think we can round this out by saying that um, the legacy of that kind of thought of CGI is basically could be summed up in the line, your CGI thought artists, you know, spent so much time thinking if they could, they didn't mm-hmm. think if they should. <laughs> well done. Senses are failing all over the park. That's nice. Our phones are out, too. Gotta go. Universal Pictures presents... Hey, hey, freeze! I can't get Jurassic Park back online. An adventure 65 million years in the making. Oh, no. 
is just a delay. That's all it is. All major theme parks had delays. When they opened Disneyland in 1956, um, nothing worked. But John, if the Pirates of the Caribbean breaks down, the pirates don't eat the tourists. You sure we're safe? Yes. Unless they figure out how to open doors. Jurassic Park. So um, I think sometimes like we, we've seemed to kind of move into this sometimes where we end up having sort of uh, almost like a double bill, like complementary films um, within our choices. Because I think sometimes, you know, we watch one thing, it puts us in the mood for something else. And I, I thought, yep. you know, there's, there's something that kind of interests me because we talked a little bit about this idea of the phenomenon. And so the movie mm. that I'm suggesting for next week was is a film that I'm not even weirdly I'm not even <laughs> sure I like. It's like I've I've fluctuated by it so much because it was this huge phenomenon. When it came out, I I initially thought I liked it, then I realized it was uncool to like it, so I decided I disliked it. And so ever since then, I've probably watched it about 7 8 times weirdly. And um I'm never totally sure if I actually like it or not. So I'm going to be interested to see what you think. But part of it is I want to talk about the phenomenon because it's kind of one of the last of its kind. Mm. And it's a really yeah. interesting – as, as a genre, it's kind of almost dead. And so it is the and, – and, and so here's the thing. Jurassic Park, when it came out, it was the highest grossing film of all time. Now, my film came and dethroned it. It is it was a massive film, a gigantic film. So we say a Titanic film. Oh, we could We're going to talk about that, Titanic. <laughs> and I'm going to run a poll on my social media and I'm going to ask people how many times they saw this cuz I'm curious yeah, how many like how many people saw this multiple times. Well, I think I was definitely like one of those guys too who threw at a certain point in my in life. In the theater, like, in the theater I, mean, I too. I saw yeah. I saw it only once in the theater, but I'm definitely somebody who saw it a bunch of times on VHS because everyone had like the two the two VHS box set, um, and I've I was one of those people who's like I don't even like like the first part all that love stuff stupid, but I like like I like when the boat's sinking that's good you know I was right. definitely you know like I could definitely have just like bought it I bought it and just watched like the boat sinking tape. No, it's going to be genuinely fascinating. I'm cool, man. I'm looking forward to it. I, I'm, I, again, it's like I will. I I could easily see myself coming in next week and going like, "Yeah, this isn't a good movie." Or I could see myself coming in and being like, "Actually, you know what? I think I've realized this is a secret masterpiece." You know, it's like it's <laughs> it's it could go either way. But I'm I'm yeah. Which is which is ironic because the move the type. T- title of the podcast is obviously I dig this movie but I think it's like because we're down this kind of weird nostalgia train with these big sort of behemoth movies um, on Jurassic Park I kind of felt like you know what it's it's it'd be interesting to reckon with the culture of Titanic yeah and to see whether or not you dig this mm. movie yeah and Anyway, um, join us next week for that. Um, if you want to check out more of our episodes, go to idigthismovie.com. You can follow us on Twitter at idigthismovie. You can follow me on Instagram at breakingpointflicks. Uh, you can check out more of my work at uh, kirsewood.com. We are uh, Wretch uh, screened at Glasgow Short Film um, Fest recently. It will be screening in Brussels in um, towards the end of April as part of a festival there. So yeah, so if we have any listeners in in Brussels, yeah, then um, then hit me up. Sick man, and you can hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden, or on Instagram, AUS underscore H A Y. And interestingly enough, Kier's film played in the same segment or section as a film that I am 
in, or my voice is in at least. Which is which is <laughs> hilarious because Austin voices a mannequin, and the whole idea is that it's a horror film where uh, all the characters are simply played by mannequins as a sort of like yeah. uh, subtextual kind of like level. And the funny thing yeah. is, the mannequin looks like Austin. <laughs> <laughs> they put a hoodie on it at one point. Don't they? They put a hoodie on it, which is why I think it looks exactly like you, because you <laughs> used to walk around with your like hood up, but like the hood, o- but like the ja- but like the, the the hoodie open, and it's yeah, like, my it, black it, hoodie. And yeah. you, see, you got the you got the like the 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 shaved head and the mannequins bald, and it just like and it just to me yeah. it just read as Austin, and I just found that very funny. And because um, yeah. uh, yes, yeah, so I was talking to David, and he said that he during the entire film he was just watching me react to your lines in the film. <laughs> amazing amazing all right so join us next week for titanic <laughs>